You may be seated. Christ has risen. My wife wanted me to inform you that next week is an all-women's service. Um, men were not allowed to come. Uh, it is going to be uh, a little bit thin around here. All of our clergy, for the most part, is going to be in Nashville. And so uh, Deacon Jess and Deacon Alley are going to be holding down the fort, but uh, they're going to do an amazing job, I'm sure. Uh, Wednesday is Valentine's Day, and if you haven't heard enough jokes about Ash Wednesday and Valentine's falling on the same day, remember you cannot spell Valentine's without Lent. Think about it for a second, if you haven't spelled Valentine recently. Uh, Roses are red, violets are blue, I'd like to contemplate my mortality with you. (laughs) I've got a lot of these, so buckle up. Uh, I told Bishop Chris that I was going to ash little hearts on everyone's foreheads, and he said, don't do that. (laughs) But I do hope you'll join us for Ash Wednesday's service. Uh, This is a really special time for us as a community. This is kind of the gateway into the Lenten season. It is the the beginning of Lent, and it's it's an opportunity for us to think about death, but as Bishop Ed has often said, we ought to think about the fact that we are going to die, but it would be odd to think about it too much. And so we don't talk about death a lot, but this is a time and a season where we remember uh, memento mori, right? Remember that you will die. And so all of our life is framed with that in mind, that all of this wraps up at some point. So we come, we receive the imposition of the ashes on our foreheads, remembering from dust we've come, and to dust we shall return. But the steadfast love of the Lord shall endure forever. Today is Transfiguration Sunday. And if you're anything like me, you've been around Christian communities or kinds of spiritualities that emphasize experiences with God. Those moments, often emotional when you feel a kind of tangible sense of God's presence or God's closeness, oftentimes in some big kind of demonstrative way. Uh, This past week, this girl from my middle school youth group posted a handful of pictures from our old church summer camp. And there were pictures of this place on the campground called the Tabernacle. Uh, We called it the Tab for short. And it was this place where all of our services happened for church camp, right? And if you know anything about church camp, you know that it's definitely a place where you expect and you are uh, preparing to, it's intended to create these kinds of experiences with God. In today's gospel, on this mountain, Peter, James, and John certainly have a kind of experience. Jesus takes them up the mountain without a doubt to join him in prayer And as they are going up, something happens. Jesus, we're told, is transfigured before them. Suddenly they aren't just by themselves, but Elijah and Moses are also there. The dead and gone are now alive and present with them. Of course, their presence in particular isn't for nothing. Moses and Elijah both represent something. They represent a lot of things. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And these two men also represent other kinds of mountaintop experiences. Remember, both Elijah and Moses had their own experiences with God on top of a mountain. Moses 
met God on the mountain in an earthquake with wind and fire. Elijah meets God on the mountain, not in an earthquake and wind and fire, but in a still small voice. And standing between them, the one who met God in these big demonstrative ways, the one who encountered God in these quiet, subtle, still, small kinds of ways, between those figures is Jesus. Jesus is there, silent, but demonstrative, not tucked away or hidden, but in some ways unable to be seen at all. They're unable to look at him. This is why I think we shouldn't envy one another's experiences or, or privilege one person's experience with God over another person's. All of Jesus' life, every moment is the announcement that God is with us. Sometimes in earthquakes, sometimes in wind and fire, sometimes in stillness and smallness, but God is always at all times revealing God's glory in our lives. And so here they are, Moses and Elijah, standing with Jesus on top of a mountain. But something else that we should remember, just as the first century hearers of this story would have remembered, is that both Moses and Elijah's lives end with a kind of question mark. Remember Moses after the Exodus, after, after leading God's people through the wilderness, liberating God's people for the promise of a promised land, never gets to step foot in that place. Moses is prevented from entering the promised land. Today's Old Testament reading reminds us that Elijah, having never received or never realized the fullness of God's promise, he has to name a successor, one who has to come after him, someone who's going to carry a double anointing. And so Elisha witnesses Elijah being carried off into the clouds. Elijah's promises never fully came. Both of them, Moses and Elijah, they were towering figures in Israel's history who never saw in fullness what God set them out to accomplish. And now here's Moses standing on a mountain in the promised land, a place that he was meant to be was, but was prevented from going in his own life. Here is Elijah, someone who is pointing back to Jesus as the true successor the only one who could ever actually bring God's promises to fruition. Jesus stands there. He stands there as one who has made possible the fulfillment of those unkept promises. He's brought them into salvation that they weren't able to accomplish for themselves. There they are, Moses, and Elijah on either side of Jesus. And Jesus himself is shining, the text says, like lightning. It's important, I think, to emphasize that Jesus didn't become something else for the disciples that he wasn't before. This moment was not about spectacle. This moment wasn't about curiosity. This moment is about revelation. 
Jesus isn't becoming something else that the disciples are now witnessing. Rather, the disciples are seeing Jesus fully as he is and as he always has been. So when we say that Christ was transfigured, we mean there was for a moment perfect clarity to his being. Such clarity that even his clothes, the text says, are shining, radiating with his glory. Suddenly, Peter, James, and John see him. They see him clearly in his fullness as exactly the one who he says he is. And in Luke's gospel, it says that while this is happening, while Jesus and his clothes are shining, while the disciples are covering their faces, Elijah and Moses are talking together about Jesus' departure, about what is about to happen in the city of Jerusalem. And while they're still talking, Peter interrupts them. Imagine the gall of this guy interrupting Moses and Elijah and says, let's make three dwellings for you here. You don't have to depart. We can stay right where we are. N.T. Wright says that Peter's reflex to speak up and his, his wanting to build these dwellings is like the same reflex we feel when we think about uh, photographing a sunset or we think about pulling our phone out to record fireworks. In those transcendent moments where we are indeed having a kind of experience or emotional response, our reflex, our intuition is to contain it, make it relivable, in some way, to preserve it so that we can come back to it. But that's just not how life is lived. Fireworks are what they are because you can feel them in your chest. You can feel the glow of your kids' faces lighting up in the dark, standing on, I was gonna say on the beach or something, but we all know the best sunsets happen when you're like walking into the grocery store Standing in those spaces, you are struck, you are hit with this sacred, divine ordinariness of the world. This reminder that even in the middle of the most mundane tasks, we can be struck by beauty and transcendence. In a rather famous icon of the transfiguration, it shows Jesus standing there with Elijah and Moses and the disciples are all on their faces. They're covering their eyes. My friend Rowan Williams commented on this and said, the apostles in this icon are shielding their eyes because what they see is not easily manageable in their existing world. They are not ready to see things with and in the light of God any more than we are. What the disciples had no ability to process was not only is Jesus who he says he is, but that what Jesus said was going to happen really is going to happen. The juxtaposition of this mountaintop experience with their own lived experience was stark and we know what happens next. After this moment, the disciples follow Jesus off the mountain and into the valley of Holy Week. 
into the week of Christ's passion and suffering, betrayal. After this moment, Jesus is taken and placed before Herod and Pilate. He's mocked, he's beaten, he's stripped, and he's crucified. And again and again, the disciples will have to recall this moment of Jesus transfigured. This moment of Jesus shining with the light from light as they embrace and prepare for this moment to see him crucified. They must remember Jesus transfigured on that mountain so that they can witness Jesus crucified on another mountain. This is at least in part why we hear this story of the transfiguration today on this Sunday before we observe Lent. Lent happens in the shadow of two mountains, the Mount of Transfiguration and the Mount of Golgotha. And we can't make sense of one mountain without the other. These two images of Jesus, Jesus transfigured and Jesus crucified, they are like, like photo negatives of each other. To see Jesus transfigured is to see Christ crucified. And to see Christ crucified is to see Jesus transfigured. We cling to both of these images because the entirety of our lives is lived between these two spaces. And the shocking, hard to believe reality is that no matter whether our lives are awash with glory or if we are immersed in suffering and betrayal, Christ is with us. We all experience moments of glory and moments of loss and disappointment. And part of the reason that this moment happens for Peter and James and John is so that we can remember that even in the messiness and the brokenness of our lives, God's light will shine through. God's light will hold us together, reflecting something of God's own life into ours. But part of what I want to suggest today is that in order for us to rightly interpret those moments in our lives, we have to be well acquainted with silence. At his most spectacular moment, Jesus doesn't say a word. Throughout this whole experience, Jesus never opens his mouth. Jesus is shining, the cloud descends on them and the cloud speaks to them, the voice of the father, this is my son, the beloved. Listen to him, listen to him. But he says nothing. The disciples are being called in this moment to attend to something and that something is silence to listen to what is being said, what is not being said, to let that experience sink in to their hearts and in their minds. And suddenly they're just there with Jesus. The cloud lifts, Moses and Elijah can't be seen, and they are there in the silence, listening to him. In fact, Jesus doesn't speak to them again until they're descending, until they're heading down off of the mountain. 
And when he does speak, he doesn't offer a word of explanation about what they've just seen and about what they've just experienced. All he says is that they must not speak. They must not tell anyone what they have seen and what they have heard until he is raised from the dead. To be sure, they were terrified in this moment. The text says that Peter's outburst about staying here and building some tents is due to the fact that they were all terrified. And now that they've come down from those heights, they have no idea what's happening. Mark's gospel says that they question in themselves everything they've seen, and they're just left in that unsettledness. I think part of what we're meant to see is that the disciples' unsettledness is also our unsettledness. That this fear and uncertainty is also ours, as well as their outbursts, as well as their insecurities. They speak up when they're meant to be silent. They're silent when they're meant to speak up. Like them, we speak at the right time, but with the wrong spirit. Or we hold our tongues in spite rather than in mercy. We fail others in this way all the time. Every day we suffer because others speak down to us or refuse to speak up for us. And every day others suffer because we fail to speak up for them or because we speak down to them. Scripture says that life and death is in the tongue. But most of the time, what we give to others and what they give to us is simply death. Deadly silence. Deadly noise. So the spirit of life is always working to teach us silence. How to listen, how to quiet down, but also when to speak up. How to do all of this life-givingly rather than death-dealingly. Maggie Ross, in her book called Silence, A User's Guide, encourages us to lower ourselves regularly into silence. Regularly, she says, and purposefully. Both liturgically in our worship and also devotionally in the course of our lives to purposefully and regularly with intention enter into spaces of silence. And it's hard, she tells us, because the practice of silence is the practice of suspending judgment. Judgment of ourselves, judgment of others, judgment of God. Entering the silence, she says, means relinquishing tightly held fixed ideas. The person who is centered in silence exercises extreme caution and shows deep respect for the mystery of creation. Out of this kind of cautious respect, we learn to notice over time what simply before escaped our attention. We can become more attentive in this space. We learn to give our attention rather than just have it captivated. And this ability to give our attention as opposed to just being captivated in the moment is the ability to give other people what we have received. 
It's the ability to love God and to love our neighbor by, by giving of ourselves, by giving of our time and our energy, our ears, our attention. Bonhoeffer says, one of the ways we best serve others is by what we do not say to them. The best way to care for them is often simply biting our tongue so that what comes to mind doesn't slip out. This is especially true when what occurs to us to say is technically right. Oftentimes we think simply knowing the truth gives us permission to say whatever, however we want or like. But if the truth isn't spoken in love and not out of fear, if it's not spoken in the spirit of compassion and mercy, if truth isn't spoken to bring life and healing, then it ceases to be the truth. It's no longer the truth. You might be technically right, but there ceases to be any truth in it. But keeping silence, holding our tongue, it isn't just about negation, taking something away. Because for God, both his speaking and his silence is a word. It is, it is creative. It is generative, even when God isn't speaking. Oftentimes, we need to make space for silence so that we can come to terms with what has been said to us, what has been done to us to let something new be birthed in us. This is why Jesus tells the disciples not to say anything until after the resurrection. He knew that the news of his resurrection would be good news only if they knew who he was, but that who he was would have meaning only once the passion had been fulfilled and he'd been raised from the dead. Imagine if they had returned and told everyone else what had just happened. We know those moments, right, where we experience something incredible only to open our mouths too quickly, to give away something precious before it's done its work in us. And what we need to learn is to let God quiet us down to say, I know that thing you experienced was good and right, but don't give it away yet. Let it work in you. Let something of what's happened be birthed in you. Because only when we do that, only when we quiet ourselves down long enough for that to take root in us, can we learn to listen in the way that God needs us to, and in the way our neighbor needs us to. Mother Teresa, during an interview, was asked what she says to God when she prays. Her answer was, I don't talk, I simply listen. And believing that he had understood what she had just said, the interviewer next asked her, ah, then what is it that God says to you when you pray? And Mother Teresa replied, he also doesn't speak. He also simply listens. If we listen both to what God is saying and what God is not saying, 
we not only come to know God as he is, we come to know others as they are. We come to know ourselves as we are. And maybe most mysteriously of all, other people come to know us in ways that we need to be known. I say mysteriously because I think we are most deeply known not when we say everything that we want to say, but when we listen most attentively. Not when we just bear our souls, but when we can bear one another's burdens is the moment when we become known. As we turn toward this season of Lent, most of us will be familiar with this practice of fasting, this this kind of negating things out of our lives. And there are lots of things that we probably ought to say about it, a lot of disclaimers to make about how fasting isn't dieting and how you should maybe actually give up things that are, are good and not just bad things, like don't just like fast from doing drugs for the next 40 days or something. But this season, in this time, we're not only called to give up certain things, even good things, especially good things, in order to make room for God, We're also called to take up practices and rhythms that help us center God in our lives. This is a season where we resist that urge to, like Peter, make familiar, comfortable dwellings, spaces that we know and understand. And instead, we look to Jesus and see what kind of space he is calling us to make, not just for ourselves, but for other people. Our friends and our neighbors, they don't need us to make tabernacles for them. They need us to hear them. I know this with my own kids as as babies. You who have raised kids know this. You learn to hear their cries in different ways. You know the cry of, of panic or pain versus a cry of sadness. You know the cry of hunger versus the cry of boredom. But as they get older, you also realize that their deepest cries, the things that need to be heard most clearly, are often the things that are kept in places that you don't see and you don't hear, but you know that they're there. That is what we need to be able to recognize in our neighbors. That the cries they don't even realize they're making, we can hear them because we've given our attention to them. Our job is not to come and to shine a light on them in the same way that Jesus shines on the disciples. Our job is to come and to help them see the light that God is already beaming into their lives. But the paradox is that we will never see that light if we don't listen. If we don't quiet ourselves down long enough to hear. In the whirlwind of this revelation, Jesus shining, clothes and all, Elijah and Moses are alive and present. The voice of God says to the disciples, listen to him. Listen to him. Again, I know we could put a lot of disclaimers around Lent. We are Protestants after all, and we're a bit allergic to anything hinting of works righteousness. But George MacDonald said something in one of his unspoken sermons that I was thinking about this week. He said this, instead of asking yourself whether you believe or not, 
Ask yourself whether you have this day done one thing because he said do it or once abstained because he said do not do it. It is simply absurd, he says, to say you believe or even want to believe in him if you do not do anything he tells you. The father tells us, listen to him, to know what to do, what not to do. But we'll only be able to listen if we keep silence and if we keep it long enough for God's silence to become a word for us. Amen.